Well, would you guys like to take a look at Psalm 10? Okay. Psalm 10. Do have um, some, you've, I'm sure you've noticed already some reoccurring themes. It makes you wonder, uh, you know, what kind of life uh, David lived with all of the troubles around him, the, the kinds of evil, his, his proximity to all of that. And of course, as a young man running from Saul, but then later as the king who was responsible for subduing, governing, and all of that, uh, that within, a, within the boundaries of Israel, and then he had all of it encroaching from outside the boundaries. And uh, just what a life. Could you imagine what kind of help you would need <laughs> after all that? So let me get there myself. Psalm 10. All right. Well, if you're able, why don't you stand up for the reading of God's Word? I'll read the whole chapter to you. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Well, Father, it, it seems that many of us can identify with the words of David uh, at various times in our life and, and because of uh, various circumstances, and, and perhaps more than ever now with all that's going on. And I pray, Lord, that you would comfort us, you would reassure us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, in the face of evil and injustice. So help us tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. 
So uh, just real quick, as far as uh, what we talked about last time when we were in Psalm 9, uh, many believe that Psalm 10 is a continuation of Psalm 9. We talked about it a little bit. And I actually had assigned some homework to Spencer. Man, this guy. So his homework was to check and look at a, uh, a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls to see if Psalm chapter 9 and Psalm chapter 10 were one psalm. Okay? And they may be in the, the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I would have looked harder, but I was confident that, you know, anyway. But uh, as we said, they are combined, they're treated as one in the Septuagint, and then also in uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So, uh, as we said, the two psalms form uh, an acrostic from the, the Hebrew alphabet, uh, but it's not, an, it's not a, a complete acrostic, but it's enough to make you think that it's, you know, it's reasonable that they're actually one psalm. When we get to Psalm 119, we will have a beautiful acrostic with no gaps, nothing missing. It's, it's just masterful how it's all done. Uh, the themes from uh, Psalm 9 to Psalm 10 are very similar. Uh, they're not completely identical. Uh, another reason that suggests that they're one literary work is that Psalm 9 ends with the word uh, sila. Uh, and as we said, most scholars believe that it's, um, it's a, a musical instruction to, to pause uh, before the music continues again, okay? But having the pause at the end, uh, that seems to be kind of a strange place to put the pause without anything following chapter nine, unless Psalm 10 is where the psalm picks up again. But that's actually not entirely convincing because Psalm chapter three, Psalm chapter 24, and Psalm six also end with Selah, with no uh, titleless uh, psalm following them. So it, maybe we might say it adds to the argument, uh, but it's not uh, completely convincing. Uh, something that also adds to the, the argument that Psalm 9 and 10 are together is that Psalm 10 has no title or author, uh, which again suggests that the title and author of Psalm 9 belongs to 10. But that's also a problem. It can't prove it because there are other psalms that have uh, no title, no attribution of authorship, and so forth. So it just adds to it, okay? Um, but I think that when we look at all of the facts, I think it does suggest that sometime in the past that a scribe, uh, a scholar, accidentally divided them. And uh, there's, uh, if you read um, a lot of the ways that they did some of the uh, transcribing and stuff of the scriptures, and then you add like practical things, like I had to go to the bathroom when I came back, I forgot where I was. And uh, oh, it looks like a, a chapter break here, and so you divide the two. Uh, who knows what kinds of things uh, could have happened uh, during transcription? Uh, a distraction, uh, a new sheet of paper, you know, you, you did Psalm 9, and it was the end of the scroll, uh, the end of that sheet of papyri. And so you started another one, and you didn't accurately title and attribute, and then the next scribe that came along, so many interesting things that could have happened. Either way, we have the text, 
We have the truth contained in both. And in this psalm, as, as you noticed, uh, David, he first, he brings his complaint to God. Uh, that's at least uh, half of the psalm. Uh, and then he begins to bring his petition to God. And then in the end, you see him putting his trust in God. He's, he's uh, been recalibrated, if you will. Or it's possible that he was calibrated the whole time and uh, he, uh, he was just venting. How many guys uh, vent? I know everyone in this room almost. <laughs> That's right. Let's, let's look a little closer. So uh, verse one, uh, he begins by saying to the Lord, he says, why do you, why do you, st- uh, you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now this reminds me of me and of other people that I've you know, engaged with when they feel helpless in light of evil and in light of circumstances, and they're frustrated. They're just like an observer uh, as all of these things are taking place, and they, they're helpless to affect it. And it's just, it's got them all worked up, and it feels like, it seems like, God is nowhere in sight. It's as if David is saying, and maybe you've said things like this as well, uh, Lord, do you not see the injustice that I'm seeing? Do you not hear the cry of the innocent that I'm hearing? Where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you helping? There's nothing uncommon about that complaint, is it? Nothing. Yeah. In fact, we've already seen that theme in Psalm 6. It's going to reoccur in many, many different psalms, and it's echoed in the prophets. It's all over the scriptures because of the abundance of evil and it being out of our control. Yeah, the Lord has heard your venting, I'm sure. But my position on venting is how could, how could a person changed by the gospel, a person who the righteousness of God is working in their life, observe evil and not comment? How does the mouth not respond to all that's going on around them? Uh, I think, not, not I think, I know, uh, currently, I'd say for the last three years, it's hard to uh, have a conversation with someone without a mention of all that's happening in our culture around the world. And if you guys pay attention at all, it doesn't take you long to uh, feel the oppression of tyrannical government, to observe with frustration the, uh, the abortion industry, uh, all of the sexual perversity, uh, the debauched indoctrination of our children. Uh, I don't know if you've seen lately, but the Justice Department um, labeling parents as d- domestic terrorists for objecting to uh, what is being taught to their children in schools. Have you guys seen that? It's, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, they'll call parents domestic terrorists, but Antifa gets away. Uh, it's just crazy. The, the push to have children's gender reassigned through surgery and drugs. Even uh, transgender doctors are coming out now and saying, this is wrong, it's crazy. Yeah, all of the cruelty we see in the world, the cheating, the violence. And like David, we say, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything, something? Helpless, frustrated, desperate for relief, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. So David vents, and I don't want to read through all of his venting again, I just want to 
hit the highlights here of what he says. He's, he's saying, the wicked persecute the poor. They boast of their desires. They bless the greedy. None of that going on in Western society. They renounce the Lord. They ignore God, sneer at God's word. They are proud, arrogant, boastful. They constantly speak evil. They seek the life of the innocent, the helpless. They prey on the poor, and they give no thought to the final judgment. Yeah. You could mistake that for some of Paul's writings. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. No problem with that in our culture. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, buter, uh, brutal, sorry, buter. I'm not sure what buter is. It sounds evil. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Paul also talks about those who are inventors of evil things. Like, I'm not satisfied with the, the variety of evil that we have, so they sit around and they, they cook up new things. They're just inventors of evil things. That's uh, the passage I read to you, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. So in an evil world, a broken world, evil persists. So things transition here. He says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. So I believe that the godly person will actually vent. And I, I don't think that venting to God uh, in a limited sense is ungodly. I think it's, it's necessary. Otherwise, it's like uh, me and in my relationship with God, we don't actually talk about things. We just ignore evil that's out there. I don't, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I think venting to a certain point is good, but if, it's, if it goes too long, you know, it does nothing good for the soul. And it certainly doesn't really change our circumstances, but if it continues, complaining is bad for the heart. Can we agree on that? It's bad for the heart. So David, in, in this psalm, he, he tells the Lord what's up, not because he thinks the Lord is uh, unknowing about it, uh, but we always... God asks us to conversate with him, to converse with him. So he tells the Lord what's up, and then he moves from complaining to petition. God, this is what's up, and here's what I'd like you to do about it. Yeah, good example to us. Because if we fail, I think, to honestly take our complaints to the Lord, the, 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 the suffering we see, the injustice, and we just complain, it'll make us bitter, and then we'll never learn to depend on God David continues, says, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. That's a dangerous thing. The God, they think that God will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Now, because... Because God doesn't always judge evil immediately, uh, people have a tendency to think that God either doesn't care about evil, okay, or uh, some might think he's not aware of evil, and others maybe think he's just lazy. 
Okay, something like that. But God does care. Uh, God is definitely aware. And he is not simply a passive observer when it comes to those things, okay? I think, I don't think, the cross is sufficient evidence that God is involved, he's aware, he's doing something about evil because Christ bore all the evil of the world that he might take it from us. And he does for the believer. But evil remains, of course, for the time being. It's in verse 14, it says that God observes evil to, that is, uh, for something, to do something. And, and he does it for two reasons, the text gives. To repay the wicked and to help the helpless and the fatherless. He's observing, he's keeping track of, he's weighing, he's considering, so that he might divvy justice out where it's needed, and that he might provide the care where it's needed. And because that is true, the first one, to repay the wicked, David says, break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever, The nations have perished out of his hand. Break the arm of the wicked and root out all evil. To seek it out means to to root it all out. And he says, until you find none. Okay, all of it. Now this idea of God observing evil in order to do something. I think that David has the, the law of God in mind where the law required, as you know, life for life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's Exodus 21, 23 through 25. You see, God ordered the reciprocation of harm so that people would be afraid to commit acts of evil against their neighbors. That's why he does it. In fact, in Romans 3, he says, he's, Paul is, uh, he's, explaining some of the nature of evil. And he says that people commit evil because there is no fear. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Without, you know, the fear of God, without good laws, people are evil. They, they just commit more and more evil. You know, any society where its citizens are not afraid to harm other societies is a dangerous society. You know, good laws that divvy out equitable punishments make for a safe and happy society. Amen? Yeah. yeah. Now, as we mentioned in the introduction to chapter 9, we don't know the historical context of these two psalms. We don't know what was going on. But something's going on, and uh, it seems that evil is pretty much out of control, and uh, it's overwhelming to David. Um, he has come to the point uh, in observing all this, that the, the only solution, he thinks, uh, must be divine intervention, like direct intervention of God. So he just calls directly upon God to punish the wicked and to purge the nation of evil. Wouldn't that be a nice request that was fulfilled? Yeah. But notice that the request to purge uh, the evil is, he says, until God in his omniscient eye sees no evil. That is not a task that man is qualified for. That has to be from God himself, okay? The purgation of all evil. And of course, we know that's not something that's going to happen currently. Verse 17 and 18. 
He says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Isn't that an interesting uh, phrase, the last part there? That the man of the earth, that the man of the earth. I'm going to have to actually do some more research on that concept. The man of the earth, that the man. It doesn't say the men. It says the man of the earth, earthly man. Um, It probably has to do with the fleshly man. But anyway, in verse 17, David says that the Lord will, in the New King James, he says the Lord will prepare the hearts of the humble. Now, the word, the translation prepare is probably not the best rendering for the context because the humble are already in the midst of trouble. Uh, Preparations are made in advance, right? They're made in advance, okay? The word primarily means to establish or to make something firm. It means to strengthen something, okay? To strengthen it. So God doesn't always deliver us from trouble and pain But the scriptures are clear over and over and over again that God is faithful to strengthen us in our weakness, to provide what is necessary so that we can endure affliction and adversity. And that is absolutely necessary um, because the judgment of God on evil, on wickedness, is not always immediate. I think that there are times when it is, uh, but God is... As Paul says in Romans 2, all of the evil in the world is being treasured up. So God is, you know, it's busy. He's collecting and accounting for all of the evil in the world. And he says man is treasuring it up. He's storing it up for the day of wrath. So he's talking about the day. Uh, Paul talks about the day. Uh, John, of course, tells us about that day. It would be nice, though, I think, from my perspective, but I'm not, uh, I don't have, possess all wisdom, but it would be nice to see at least some immediate action now. And, and maybe that's because I'm carnal, but then I would have to understand that that would include me. Amen? I would get immediate retribution from the Lord as well. I want it for you. I just don't want it for me. Okay. <laughs> I want justice for you, but leave me alone. Yeah but he will purge the earth. So uh, in this psalm, as we've said, David, he, he brings his complaint to God. He brings his petition to God. And in the end, he puts his trust in God, knowing that the final judgment of the wicked, it's going to come. Okay, it's going to come. But is that all that there is for us in the context of evil in our world? Is that, is that all we have? Now, I think it's a lot, but is it all that we have? The answer is no. The answer is no. The Old Testament is not sufficient to address the problem of evil. We, we must turn our attention to the New Testament. We must. And I believe that David, especially after many of the Psalms he wrote, and Jesus says that my words were in his mouth, he was looking forward to something different, something more, okay? We have to turn to the New Testament. Now, of course, We need to do what David did with his complaints, petition, and the placement of his trust. But in the new covenant, we're also commissioned in regard to evil. 
We're not called to just be observers or to militarily squash evil. That's not the duty of the church. David had responsibility to do that as the king, especially within the theocracy of Israel. We're a little different than that, amen? Right? Okay, unless you're into dominion theology, and uh, I would love to talk with you after service about that. So New Covenant, we're commissioned to affect evil first by doing good, and then by preaching the gospel. These two things are, they're absolutely necessary. The, um, the doing of good and the preaching of the gospel, especially when they're mingled together, the effect that it had on the first 300 years of uh, the Roman society is absolutely amazing. The things that the church accomplished just through good works and the, and the gospel. First, uh, it often begins by doing good. And Jesus brought this up immediately uh, in Matthew. We'll be there real soon on Sunday mornings, but it's the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a number of references to evil and the mistreatment of his people. He, he actually begins by saying, blessed, uh, which means happy, or oh, how happy, are the persecuted. Because that's what you are when you're persecuted, right? Blessed, he says, are the reviled, and blessed are the slandered. Blessed, yeah. Now, we call these the Beatitudes, because that is the attitude that we should have, okay? In spite of circumstances around us, okay? In spite of it. He's saying that God's people can be happy through all of these things, because God makes provision for them. But... As he goes on, Jesus prescribes the way to affect the evil that comes our way, uh, or as Paul says, how we might overcome evil. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. But he doesn't stop there. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, let your, your light so shine before men. The implication is unbelieving men, ungodly men. Okay? that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 says something very similar to that, but Peter is speaking uh, not, to, not within the context of God's covenant people, Israel, but he's now outside of Israel, and he's talking about the Gentile world. So very specifically, unbelievers, that our, that our good works would have an effect on them. Now, good works, we'll talk about, won't save anybody but it does have an impact on the person. So the objective is here, according to Jesus and all through the New Testament, is to convert evil people into saved people. And we do that, he's saying, by way of doing good, okay? Doing good, not by good alone, but by use of good. Now, it appears when we look at the Old Testament that they were kind of reserving the wicked for judgment, that they were like, well, they're evil, God, kill them all. They're Gentiles, uh, they're not uh, converting on their own to the God of Israel, uh, they're just always a problem to us. And so this constant like, well, God, just take care of them, just take care of them. But we don't find that uh, so much in the New Testament. Uh, we should be doing good to them, okay, in hopes of rescuing them from judgment. Not just saying, all right, just God take them away. 
uh, we too were rescued from judgment, right? Something that Paul tells Titus uh, to keep in mind. That's, that's, that's something that we should be reminded of often, I believe, uh, so that we don't uh, grow indifferent toward those who are headed for judgment. Now, like nobody else, Jesus understood uh, that the world was condemned. He says, everyone is currently condemned, the world. But he says, I came to rescue them from condemnation, John three seventeen through 18. And that's, that's the same heart that God's people should have toward the lost and an evil world. And what we see in the life of Jesus, one of the things that he did to draw people to the truth was by doing good, by doing good. Was he a benevolent person? I think he was the ultimate benevolent person. person. Oftentimes, uh, when you look at the stories of the gospel, uh, it was because of Jesus' goodness that people were attracted to his message. It kind of opened their ears. It would lend them to listening. Would you listen to somebody that healed your son? I think you would, yeah. Good works created opportunities for the gospel. They're not, and I don't, now I need to be clear about this. Good works are not an essential component in gospel preaching, but I believe they're a nice appetizer for it, okay? I believe that. And if, you know, if we of all people fail to do good in this world, there's going to be a severe shortage of good in this world, yeah. And without good, the vacuum is always filled with evil. But I think the good thing as evil continues to encroach uh, and, and dominate, uh, that the good works of, uh, of God's people will become more evident, okay? Just like a source of light becomes more evident as it gets darker, amen? Yeah. So let the light of your good works shine. We need to be intentional. We need to be creative about doing good to those who are evil, but not in an end in itself, Goodness must be followed by the gospel or evil in the end will prevail. Um, let me give you a, an example of Paul confronting evil directly with the gospel. It's one of my favorite ones. Let me come back to it in a minute. Let me, let me address this other thing first. Uh, a thing of being creative in good works. So this is the, um, the English Standard Version. I think it, it, it translates the, the second half better than other translations. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Uh, literally, be contributing to the needs of the saints because of the, the voice, the verb tense there. And he says, and seek to show hospitality. Uh, seek to show hospitality. Literally in the Greek, it means uh, kindness to strangers. Kindness to strangers. So we have, um, you know, we have the, the, our efforts to the believer, the saints, but then we have this other effort that is made toward uh, the unbelieving, the stranger. Okay. And, and what he's saying is, he says, in, your good, in, a, in a good work, he says, make hospitality an intentional thing, an intentional thing for the sake of strangers. It's not passive, it's intentional. You cannot practice this kind of hospitality by sitting and waiting around for the opportunity, can you? He's telling us to seek out the opportunity to show kindness to strangers. That's a good work. Now, how creative do you think you could be in seeking to show hospitality to strangers? You could be very creative. Um, how many people, strangers, unbelievers, do you think you could have over to your house for dinner in a month? Maybe it'd be stretching it for you, but maybe you could have one, maybe more. 
How many for you that would just be a stretch to have a stranger in your home over for dinner? The rest of you just aren't being honest. How many guys are good at just carrying conversation, striking a conversation with strange people? Yes, that is a fact. He is. Yeah. Yeah. What a great, a great thing to have people over. Yeah. But of course, as I said, it's not an end in itself. It has to be followed by the gospel. Okay. Has to, evil has to be confronted by us. Here's Paul's example, which I love so much. He, of course, is on uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, uh, in Athens. And he says to these uh, various kinds of philosophers, he says, truly, these times of ignorance, that's a way to win a philosopher's heart right there. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What evil is Paul confronting in Acts 17? What's the context? Idolatry. That's right. Idolatry. You know, it's, it's, it's probably the, the one thing that David did not do that caused God to say, uh, of all of the descendants of David, uh, it says they, they were not like their father David, who walked in all of my ways. He was or he was not. So David became the standard, right, for the kings of Judah. And it's probably because David never fell into idolatry. And it's what squashed the other kings. God can tolerate a lot, but idolatry is among the most evil things that a man can do, okay, to worship basically the devil, to worship demons. So yeah, he's, he's confronting the evil of idolatry, and he's calling the people to repentance, okay? Now, you cannot confront evil with any positive effect ever without confronting it with repentance in light of the gospel. So if, if this is the thing. We can complain about evil all the time, But until we're willing to confront it, one by good works, and the other through repentance in the gospel, uh, there's just nothing, okay? We should be, as God's people, we should be faithfully sharing the gospel message to the people. Otherwise, the world is going to be left to that, this natural trajectory of evil which leads to death, okay? Goodness and benevolence will not suffice on their own. Good works and benevolence, though, they make us feel good, about ourselves, and that's typically why people get involved, okay? Uh, it's, it's not confrontational, right? It's not confrontational, so we like that, but it cannot ever be an end in itself. Uh, one of the sad things about using benevolence as an end in itself is what we've seen with the great benevolent societies of Europe and of America, okay? Uh, they started out doing all kinds of good, but undergirding all of that was a strong gospel message. But over time, all of them have stopped preaching the gospel and are now only doing benevolence, which is ultimately a distraction from the inevitable. You know, goodness minus the gospel leads to death. So, so understand, and you've probably heard me say stuff like this before, but people who achieve sobriety go to hell every day. They do. Uh, so do those who are housed and well-fed by these groups. They are lost every single day when they pass without the gospel. Okay. 
the good that was intended to create a platform to preach the gospel has become the platform for itself, which has emptied benevolence of its value, okay? Emptied it. The gospel alone is the power of God and salvation without the aid of anything else, okay? Now, that cannot be said about benevolence. Benevolence without the gospel is ultimately dangerous, okay? If it does not lead people to a life of glorifying God, it leads to death. The gospel is what gives life. But how much more will people listen to you if you express goodness? Amen? So we can't lose sight of the priorities, but we can use goodness, good works, to create a platform with people that otherwise wouldn't listen to what we say. Okay? So when it comes to evil, uh, like the psalm that we looked at tonight, bring your complaint to God. If you don't, I don't think you're really concerned about evil. If you're only sharing your complaints about evil with other men, I'm not certain that you really care that much about it. Um, and then bring your petition to God. But in your petitioning, you know, you, we might say, God, just end it. And God would say, well, I've got a plan to end evil. Would you like to participate? Because there's a way that I do it. I know there's the way that you want me to do it, but I have a plan for this. And then trust God as you endure evil, and then get with it according to the New Testament. Do good to those who are evil, and then preach the gospel to them, and see what God does with the problems that are around us. Amen? So do good. Don't omit the gospel. Go ahead and stand up, and we'll pray. All right, well, Father, um, I think all of us are willing to admit there's a whole lot of complaining going on from person to person about what is going on in our country, around the world. And uh, I, can, I can do some pretty impressive venting to other people. But Lord, help us to bring it to you because we really do care. Lord, help us to, to earnestly petition you about what's going on and help us, Lord, to be willing to engage with it according to your means. And Lord, ultimately, the only thing, as you have prescribed, that is going to impact evil is the gospel. So Lord, I pray that wherever we are deficient in our understanding that the gospel is the only power of God to salvation, I pray that you would restore us, that you would encourage us, and that we would, perhaps for the first time, or once again, encounter the truth of the power of the gospel, Lord. And that we would find or know rather the necessity of preaching it to those who are lost. Lord, you have changed so many evil people through the gospel, beginning with the Apostle Paul. And as Paul said, if you can change and save him, you can change and save anybody. So Lord, help us to, to believe that and help us to do it. And Lord, with that said, Lord, um, there is so much evil going on around us right here in our community. So Lord, I, I pray for Calvary Chapel that we wouldn't be passive observers of all of it, but that we would be creative and active, Lord. Help us as a church, help us as your people to do good, to seek out evil people, to be hospitable, and Lord, to be bold and preach repentance in the gospel. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.